I'm struck by how little we have taken Jesus's commands to love our enemies seriously. And if we did take that more seriously, how much more opportunity to experience that transformative power would we have? And how much more confidence, therefore, would we have that we can steward power for others instead of exerting it over them? Because Jesus is going to take care of us. Continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse from the cops. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we envision a post culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. We are wrapping up our series on power, and Brad and I wanted to just jump in and do one more episode where the two of us just reflect on what we have learned through this series. We, uh, If you've been with us over the last several months, really, we've done a number of episodes. So we've 14 episodes where we've been talking about power. We interviewed 10 different guests. We had a number of great questions from and conversations with you uh, listeners to our podcast and we actually added a couple more interviews based on your feedback and your input so thank you so much for that we started this series because we have seen power become a charged and contentious issue in our time and so brad um i thought it might be fun as we wrap this up just to kind of think back when did you first start to become aware of the dynamic of power in the church and in our culture more broadly and realize that we needed further help as Christians here? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think you can spend any time in, in vocational ministry, never mind as a Christian in the church, and not at least be able to talk about and name the symptoms of power and where it's used well or not. Um, but I, yeah, and, and I, processed and talked a couple, referenced a couple times how I've been on the receiving end of um, spiritual abuse in the church. However, that was very much something that I feel like I we only had that conversation maybe with other pastors uh, or wise lay elders or older Christians. Uh, it really, it became a massive part of the, the conversation uh, really starting in the 2016 election and campaign. Uh, it, and that was, I think, mm. really when, as we were, because that was back when the table was in the pre-launch phase. We launched two Sundays before the 2016 election. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, so, so in a lot of ways, like there's never been a time at the table where power wasn't a significant on the surface kind of explicit aspect of the conversation. But it was it was not too long before then that that started becoming some one of the, some of the questions that people would ask when we were talking about yeah we're planting this church in Boulder County. Um, I re- was remember feeling very surprised when people were like, "Oh, so is this a denominational church?" And it's like, mm. uh, "Yes, is that okay?" You're like, "Oh no, that's good." Oh, mm. oh, it is. You know that was <laughs> that was in a lot of ways the, the a response to. Uh, especially, you know, Christians who are really kind of engaged and paying attention to some of those things that's now like just in the air we breathe, I think. So yeah, that's definitely when I first started mm. to to notice that that was something beyond um, a sphere of concern for pastors. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. What about you? Uh, so I, I've got a couple of moments that kind of stand out as I was thinking about this question. I feel like for me, 
the the question of like we need to figure out what power is and how how are we using it and how ought we to use it two moments stand out and they're really when like it, it's these are moments when it, it felt like I was starting to realize that like the the ground beneath us was starting to shake mm-hmm. and um the the first one of these might sound a little bit weird and I'm a little bit even hesitant to like say this person's name but but I'm going to do this okay so do I it. grew up in um I grew up in Southern California in a really really large church and um in the late 80s and in the 90s and this was sort of like uh the the church I grew up at was sort of one of the more influential, I would say, Southern California mega churches, but was definitely in the like seeker-sensitive movement. Hmm. And so Bill Hybels was like, he was like the man in that world, right? And, yeah. and the pastor of Willow Creek and uh, in Chicago. And Willow Creek had been, uh, at that time when I was growing up, that was like, I don't know, the largest or the fastest growing, or, you know, it was, it was like the it church in that world. And, and then I went, like, I, I started studying theology in, in college and had this very, like, uh, I would say, uh, overreaction against where I, like, hated everything seeker-sensitive megachurch <laughs> uh, for, like, 15 years and said awful things that I'm still repenting uh, to my parents over, um, <laughs> like, uh, 20 years later. But um, so all of that is background to say when the scandal kind of broke that Bill Hybels had been involved in, let's just say abuse of power and, and maybe some sort of sexual impropriety. Um, that was like, that was a really big deal. But what was crazy about it was I think he had maybe just uh, stepped down, resigned as the, uh, like retired as the founding pastor of Willow Creek. And the, there were two pastors that were going to replace him. that were going to lead this church that was going to be like, this was, like to, to, it's hard to overstate how influential that church was. Yeah, and the two pastors that were going to replace Bill resigned, and I think the entire elder board resigned mm-hmm. when when the news broke of of his abuse of power. And I just remember thinking, this this is like the you know when we like we've so, talked so much about institutions, but like you, you would have said like that church was an institution. Oh yeah. And for a moment, it was like it, it might not even be there in a couple of months, right? And so that, that like, how does that happen? And, and it's all because of an issue of power. So that was like the first snapshot. The other one that comes to mind when we think about this, especially in a cultural context, is when George Floyd was killed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was like in the insanity of like, you know, I think this was May 2020. So... Um, early days of COVID <laughs> in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but it, my wife, okay, so there was the initial COVID lockdown and then things started loosening up a little bit and my wife was traveling. She was out of town when George Floyd was killed and just the immediate unrest. And I remember this feeling of like, she's an airline flight away and we're watching the news going, what in the world is happening? And it just felt like the foundations of things that we had long thought were stable and settled were starting to shake. And, and again, it's because of a, a, an issue of abuse of power. 
So those are kind of just like I said, as I think about that, the two moments where I'm like, this is an issue that I uh, have not had to appreciate or understand at a very uh, deep level. And yet Mm -hmm. it's going to become a really important factor, I think, moving forward. Yeah. So let me let me ask this then, because our original trajectory for this and our thesis was that we suspected that part of what we're seeing and part of the reasons why we are remembering these moments is because Christians have largely neglected a, a, a sufficient level of attention to this dimension that is power. And we just either assume it uncritically or we ac- actively avoid and pretend it's not there. We, either way, uh, one of the consequences of that, or maybe another uh, dimension or side of that is that we, we really need to recover this category of wisdom to help us mm-hmm. navigate uh, issues that involve power and and then understand how to also steward that well. So as you've been thinking about this and as we've been talking with all of these amazing guests, would you say that that thesis has been borne out um, to, to whatever degree? Yeah, I mean, I... I th- um, at the risk of like um, straining to pat ourselves on the back, <laughs> I, I feel like it's hard to um, overstate the degree to which I think those initial like gut instincts we had um, mm-hmm. have been borne out. You know, the, the the question of wisdom again, like if especially if you've kind of grown up in a church context or studied like the wisdom literature of the Bible, I think it often can come across as well, hard to understand, but also about like learning a bunch of like, what would you do if kind of scenarios. But, mm-hmm. but I think I'm realizing more and more that, that wisdom is about being formed by the Holy Spirit into a person who resembles the image of Christ, who, who, who then like, when a situation that was completely unimaginable presents itself to you, you have the resources to figure out a gospel answer or a gospel response to that. And so it's, it's not like this. Um, so are you saying that you would say that uh, a prerequisite for wisdom would be like fruit of the spirit? Yeah. <laughs> like how can you act wisely if the thing that comes out of you when provoked are, are, is not the fruit of the spirit? Right, right. But I think that that is such a more um, like actually realistic approach to wisdom than like memorize the book of Proverbs and then apply <laughs> yeah. these like fortune cookie sayings to the appropriate situation. Mm-hmm. Because one... Uh, the way that I had thought about wisdom in that kind of like more fortune cookie sort of a a way it it requires, like it's a completely intellectual exercise. Hmm. Right. But I think wisdom is actually, like you said, it's more about having spent time in the presence of God, the fruit of the spirit being formed in your life. And then, you know, who knows what any one of us might face between here and, you know, like, okay, this is a podcast. You, I listen to podcasts when I'm going for a run or driving to the car, right? You might be driving the car and, in, and encounter a situation that you had never thought about what would you do in that situation before, right? Like in the next period of time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't think it's like an, a cognitive intellectual exercise that's going to help you know how to handle that situation. 
right? It's going to be um, the, 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 the Holy Spirit bearing the fruit of that in our lives. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder, gosh, I, I feel like this kind of relates to how I would answer the question some too. Um, like, I would say, I think I've mostly gotten, you know, that, that thesis has been borne out, but I think I have a much greater appreciation for complexity and motive. Mm-hmm. And yeah. similarly, like I was thinking about how like how much more I appreciate this is uh, an emotional dynamic than it is a conceptual problem. Um, hmm. And so that aspect of it is absolutely borne out. But also, I, I think there is still a, I think there's a, a, a cognitive dimension that a lot of the way that I see people talking about power that is lacking because it actually is, uh, you know, kind of like what... Um, uh, Dr. Moore was talking about uh, with, you know, we have become a Bible quoting instead mm-hmm. of Bible reading culture. And, and without the, like, okay, maybe you intellectual, you, you, you memorize the book of Proverbs, which would be amazing. Uh, but instead of just like, okay, now I know what to do in blank situation, you you spent the time to allow that to percolate deeper into asking the question of like, okay, why should I, or should I not answer a fool according to his folly? What's the principle and the gospel that's underlying there? Oh, it's that within conflict, my motivation must be for their good. And so, so like there is an aspect of that, that, you know, engaging with that tri-perspectivalism that we talked about in the beginning that is like, it's got to be a both and, and, mm. and, and, um, but we also can't, we definitely can't intellectualize our way out of it. And so, yeah, I think just all that to say, it makes me sad. And I think that the polarization that we see in society right now and in our culture has been infecting the church. And the reason why is because we have been both too uncritical in terms of what we are allowing to be smuggled into our, the way that we are viewing the world in a way that is kind of a cognitive intellectual awareness, but also we're too reactive and willing to like engage and wrestle with the pig in the mud in ways that like, no, we should not answer the, the fool according to the folly, their folly when it comes to the polarization that is just racking society right now. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about the, the like the stewardship angle of this? Like we, we kind of talked about uh, often Christians have tried to ignore the, the existence of power. And when they do so, they sort of de facto end up baptizing any power as good. Um, and, and so instead of that, our, our kind of initial hunch was actually power is something that has to be stewarded, not wielded against people. Yeah. I mean, I, gosh, I, I think that is of, of any aspect of our thesis that's been most borne out. That is absolutely the case. Uh, that, that, that has been, that has held up. I, especially because I feel like I see this, um, this caricature, uh, when it comes to conversations around power, especially cultural or social power, uh, that says, okay, the left views power as you should just, if you have power, it's bad and you should just give it up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the right sees like, oh, actually, you know, the pursuit of all power or like is, is good. And that's the only way we, we do this. And it's like, no, 
you know, both of both of you are in many ways seeing yourself as power mongering. You're just redefining the terms. And mm. and that's actually a dishonest way uh, uh, in the conversation because you're not actually doing this in a way that is for the flourishing of of another. And so, like, make the argument, make the persuasive argument about how a given context for power should be utilized in, and, and why that would be, that would flourish people. Like, we, mm. we don't have those conversations. And I'm not saying that you should, like, go try and do that on Twitter. Like, that sounds like a <laughs> terrible idea. Um, but how much of that posture are we imbibing over and against and compared to the kind of culture war caricatures that I just described mm -hmm. and how much of what we're imbibing as a kind of media diet is actually forming and shaping our view of power. So like all that to say, right, Bryce, you and I, we have a, we have uh, some power with this platform, right. With, with this podcast and a we very were, small amount. Well, sure. But, <laughs> but that's actually the point. We, it's yeah. not, we're yeah. not, you know, Joe Rogan or whoever is at the yeah. top of the charts right now. Um, but like with whatever power we have, we should use that to both learn from and, and, and leverage that power for the sake of others, both mm -hmm. like in terms of whoever's listening, but also for the sake of like you and I learning through this process such that we can carry these lessons into our local yeah. church ministry yeah. and, and now have a better and deeper understanding. Yeah. Well, and I think that the language of stewardship sort of helps us to acknowledge the reality that that we all have some measure of power. Yeah. And so it, and power we don't see and or and aren't aware of. Right. But it but it it can also feel like in our cultural moment that if you are shown to be exercising power, it's kind of this gotcha moment. I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of ironic that you just mentioned Joe Rogan, because you, <laughs> sure. okay, so there, there's this dynamic of like, let's, uh, and typically it happens in this direction, though it could happen in the opposite direction, but like typically somebody who is leaning to the right side of the cultural political spectrum says something stupid or does something stupid. And then, um, and then, you know, then there's the, the progressive kind of cancel culture response, which mm. act, which actually is an exercise of power. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so, by saying, actually, we're called to steward whatever power we actually find ourselves with. I think it kind of takes off the table that like, ah, gotcha, you just got caught exercising authority here. And we all know because we're nice people that that's something you should never do. No, are well, you kidding me? Like we're all, well, in the simplest ways, absolutely. we're all stewarding power. Like if you drive a car, like there's an incredible amount of power and I don't mean like horsepower there, but like that allows you to do things. I'm just trying to think of like, what's a very simple, ordinary, everyday thing that every, not everybody, but like so many of us do that is actually an exercise of stewarding power. Well, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, I wish we'd had, uh, I don't know who we would even ask for this, but I, I want to like sit somebody down who can talk about the differences in the way that power is both accumulated and then leveraged in different dimensions, like social versus cultural versus mm. spiritual, political, whatever, because right. Most of the way that the, those gotcha moments that you just described turn out is because we see a, a power that is exercised from top to bottom. Um, mm -hmm. but the response is actually a different kind of power 
in the same dimension, but from the bottom to the top in terms of the the backlash against Joe Rogan. And to say that, like, that's not power. No, of course it is. Of course it's power. And that's yeah. dishonest and disingenuine to say that, like, only institutional top-down kind of power matters versus the kind of populist cultural bottom-up power. I mean, this well, and, is more multifaceted than we give it credit for. And, I mean, isn't that so much of what's happening with, like, the populist movements uh, of our time, but but we tend to think of those again as only right leaning, and yet, you know, the populism of Twitter is tends to be far more progressive leaning, right? It's it's yeah, it's a both and. And it was funny. This is I was listening to um, I can't remember what podcast it was, but hearing someone talk about the strange kind of unity among world governments in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and mm. even the bipartisan in the in US Congress uh, the bipartisan response with sanctions that was kind of took a lot of people by surprise of like mm-hmm. wait we agreed on something significant why didn't this happen <laughs> you know some some other time like i mean i'm super excited the daylight savings time uh, is is finally going to go away because of unanimous vote in in the U.S. Senate. Uh, but like, that was a high bar for me, and right. so to see that happening, and so the explanation I heard somebody give was that, um, you know, part of the polarization and the culture warring that we're seeing and the populism is the result of a of a society that has gotten really basically comfortable, and we haven't had. Like we're always going to gravitate. He, he said this, he said, um, we will always look for opportunities to exercise power. And when there isn't one to exercise or leverage that actually accomplishes some good in a meaningful way, we'll look for non-meaningful ways to do it. Hmm. And I was like, wow. And that, that's what like suffuses I mean, it with meaning. Yeah. I think that's kind of what um, like Ross Duthit's uh, thesis is in his book on de- decadence, right? That sure. a society in decline um, doesn't sort of self implode in overt or obvious ways as much as it sort of leverages its resources and power for things that are ultimately trivial. Uh, Yeah, no. uh, Yeah. That's, that's absolutely the case. I mean, you saw that that work out when, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and suddenly all of the coverage about, Truckers protesting vaccine mandates literally just disappears from any kind of conversation. Mm. And so it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So as we've been reflecting about this too, like we, we kind of said we wanted to come with this, uh, come to this conversation with three kind of buckets to talk about, right? A key moment, a common theme and a biggest takeaway. So Bryce, what was your key moment, common theme and biggest takeaway? Yeah, so I think the key moment, I mean, we had so many great conversations with really incredible uh, guests um, during this series, but one stands out to me when we were talking to Dr. Diane Langberg about uh, abuse of power, um, especially in the church, and her book, Redeeming Power, I I asked her um, a question um, I, I asked her, can you accidentally be an abuser? And I, I feel like, beh- I just want to talk for a second about what's behind that question, because I don't know if this is something that everybody does, but I'm the sort of person where when I have to get a background check 
like to work with the children's ministry at our church, for example, mm-hmm. you got to get a background check. And I'm always terrified, I'm like not overtly, but I'm like, there's this sense of nervousness because I'm like, what if there's something that's discovered in my past, you know, <laughs> Where I'm what like, do you have to be afraid of, Bryce? <laughs> well, it, I know that intellectually, but at an emotional yeah. level, I'm like, what if, what if like something comes up and I'm like, uh, found out. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of leaders, especially in this moment that we're living through, I mean, there have been so many instances where something, you know, that somebody did long in their past is brought to light and is used to cancel or to try to cancel that person. And, um, and, and that's what I was getting at when I'm asking this question, can you be a person who is accidentally an abuser? Like you're trying to do the, but like, we're all fallen, we're all broken and we all make mistakes and we all hurt each other. And I was honestly shocked at how quickly and clearly Dr. Langberg just said, no, Mm -hmm. Um, that is not something that happens by mistake that happens unintentionally. Um, that of course we, we make mistakes and we hurt each other and we fail in our callings. Um, but, but abuse is a power that is misused to harm another person. And that doesn't just happen like as a whoops, I didn't mean to do that sort of a sort of a thing. So I, um, that was, that was really interesting. And, and I think kind of, okay, so key moment. So common theme, and this kind of is related to that is, uh, we, we started off most of our interviews asking our guest, could you just define power for us? And it was super interesting to me how matter of fact, everybody's answer tended to be and how simple it was that power is the ability to affect change and we all have power and we are all called to steward that power for others and we are all tempted to use the power that we have to manipulate um, others to one degree or another. And, and, and again, like taken to an extreme, that's what abuse looks like. Um, but almost every one of our guests, I, I think I was just imagining power as this thing that's really hard to even understand what we're talking about hmm. and therefore hard to gain perspective and wisdom. And yet I felt like the common theme was, no, this is really simple. This is really clear. Everybody has power. It's about influence. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that, I mean, if anything, that just goes to reinforce the thesis that we were talking about that the neglected dimension is wisdom because it may be easy to understand, mm. but it's not necessarily clear in terms of how it works out situationally or, or existentially. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, yeah. And then biggest takeaway for me, I, I think just, uh, I feel like I'm maybe starting to understand what the Apostle Paul really meant when he said that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And this was a big part of my conversation with Kyle Strobel, uh, one of the earlier conversations we had in this series. Um, but I, 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 if you think about it, like we're witnessing um, two vastly different approaches to power on a global stage um, right now. And you have you know, Putin, which is like power for the sake of power alone. And then mm-hmm. Zelensky, which is in some, who is in some ways embodying what power through weakness looks like. 
And it's, it's fascinating to think about how much more powerful the use of power through weakness really is. But what, what the Bible is talking about is God's power shining through our weakness. Mm. And um, I mean, this relates to a lot of stuff I've been just thinking about and reading about in a larger context, but kind of just beginning to understand that when we stop trying to exercise out of our strength, that we have to begin to embrace weakness. And that is actually ultimately where God's God's glory and God's power is displayed through our actions. Man, it actually didn't occur to me until you were describing that how related and co- at least seemingly correlated power through weakness is um, is with like str- like power through strength is anti vision and mm-hmm. weakness is vision, right? Because there's there is when you are stewarding power instead of uh, stewarding strength or using your strength, right? You are, if you're doing it for someone else, you are by definition putting yourself in a, at least positionally in, in a place of weakness because it is, it is from you and for others. Right. And mm. that is a, like, because there's nothing mushy middle about Zelensky's posture and leadership. I mean, it's strong in the way it's right. expressed, but right. it absolutely is from a place of weakness and for the sake of his people. Yeah. Um, and that is something, it is, is the contrast between him and Putin, who is, I mean, pick the anti-vision, whether it's, they're a threat to us. We have to, you know, we have to take them back because Ukraine is the, you know, holy land of of uh, the Russian empire. And, you know, like it's all, it requires an enemy hmm. and vision requires a neighbor. Hmm. And that is, man, I, I just, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Like, That'll preach that we gotta, we gotta write that down somewhere Yeah, <laughs> uh, or record it. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, how about you? A uh, key moment, common theme, biggest takeaway from this series. Yeah. So gosh, these are also related to me for me, but uh, the key moment, I am still recovering from that part of the conversation we had with Jim, with Jim Pachta, where he, where I asked him about like, why are we weaponizing identity? Like why, like why would something like sexuality be something that we gravitate towards either uh, in order to like defend ourselves from attack or to attack other people, like whatever it is, like something so inherently vulnerable. And, what came out of that part of the conversation was just like, there's an assumed hopelessness in that, that, mm. that, that says like, there's no way for my vulnerability to, uh, to be redeemed in a way that like, like basically I, I, I have to double down on this in a way that is uh, just, it just makes me so sad. Um, and, and we, I, that, again, with the, you know, these are all related to me, but like, we kind of heard that with uh, Dr. Langberg when she was saying that like, yeah, the reason that people who have experienced abuse are so quick to trust is because they're desperate and they're hungry. Yeah. And, and it's like, and, and even when we talked to David French and he was talking about illiberalism being the more important culture war dynamic than left and right in terms of its contents, more about your posture and position in terms of power, like it's all fear driven and hopeless. 
And it's just, it just kind of like, honestly has wrecked me and made me like, I'm still kind of pulling that back into my other uh, categories or examples of power and where it's used well or not. And just realizing like the example you were just talking about with, with Zelensky, how do you do that without like, he's not faking hope. Like there's no, there's no falseness with that. And we're not, I'm not trying to make the whole podcast about, you know, Ukraine and everything, but like, (laughs) I I mean, it is, it has been pretty stunning to realize because of that example, how few public examples we have of that and how, how rare it seems, you know, now that we've, we're, we're getting to see that, um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I, I think what is so maybe inspiring about, about what you're describing there and the, the connection between hopelessness and fear is that it's not like Zelensky has nothing to fear. Sure. Yeah. Right. Like clearly he has much to be afraid of Uh and, and yet hope. Okay. So you don't need to have hope when everything's going great. And when you're at the mm. beginning of the golden brick road and the, like the world is laid out before you and everything's easy and good and the wind is at your back, right? Hope is necessary when um, circumstances do not look like they're going to work out in your favor. Mm. And I think that that is... Um, you know, p- part of, I think, what we're describing here, the difference between bravado and courage, Ooh, right? Like yeah. Bravado is standing up and saying, like, none of this matters. Follow me. I know where I'm going. It's blustering, right? Courage. Um, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but, like, I've been talking to my sons about this. The, the, the courage, the, word, the root of the word courage is the, is the word core, which is the French word for heart. Hmm. And you cannot have courage if you don't have heart in the situation. And again, not that this whole thing is about Ukraine, but, you know, two big pictures of the way that power is being wielded or stewarded. And Zelensky is, is operating with courage, right? He's all, he's there. He, he's got tons of reasons to be afraid. And he's there with hope and he's there with heart. Yeah. I, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this this relates so much to the to my common theme that I feel like I've I've been noticing and able to connect the dots on, uh, which is that when we are, when we exert power over someone in, versus stewarding for others, that is coming from a place in that to some degree or another is a disbelief in Jesus's power to transform others or ourselves. And, and, and there are valid and invalid reasons for that. Like we can, we can reach that point because we have been on the, the receiving end of abuse for like chronically. And that's, it's valid. That's why we actually need others to help, uh, help us and to steward power for our sakes in those moments. Right. But I really like, <laughs> I, I'm struck by how little we have taken Jesus's commands to love our enemies seriously. Hmm. And and if we did, 
take that more seriously, how much more opportunity to experience that transformative power would we have and how much more confidence, therefore, would we have that we can exert power or, excuse me, we can steward power for others instead of exerting it over them because Jesus is going to take care of us, right? Like there's a difference between belief that a bridge will hold your weight from looking at the drawings to a belief that bridge will hold your weight because you've walked across it. Yeah. And both are good, but only one is really going to give you, like, leave you with confidence. I mean, unless you're an engineer and you're just wired like that, you know what I mean. (laughs) Don't overextend the analogy. Um, But, like, the opposite of that is very much this kind of vicious downward spiral. So it actually makes total sense that we have become a culture inside and outside the church that is obsessed with power and maintaining our power uh, because it is so self-protective and rooted in this oh, just a lack of like experiential receiving of God's power in ways that actually change the way that we view the world. And I think that's on us. I'm not saying it's like God's fault. I'm saying like, yeah, we, I, I think Bryce, you and I were talking about this, or maybe I was talking to somebody else at the table here recently, but um, you know, Oh, that's what it was. I got a question during the Q&A after uh, one of our sermons where somebody was asking, like, do you think that evangelicalism as a whole has, like, part of the reason why it we react in fears because we've neglected mission? And I'm like, yes. Without qualification, yes. And it is because, like, what the way mission is good for us is because it puts us in a place where we actually have to depend on Jesus right. in a way that, like, like a- requires us to exercise faith. And obedience to Jesus in that area can bring out and and pull out and grow and be a catalyst for our faith. But if we are lacking power or experience of God's power, I I, I guarantee there's a it's very likely that part of that is that we don't take Jesus's commands to love our enemy or never mind love our neighbor very seriously. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, I mean, in some ways, you know, that reveals the extent to which even so much of our talk about mission and being missional is really just like updated language or or programming. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh man. So my biggest takeaway is just, is just like, I think I mentioned this at some point in the, in the, in the series. Um, But like, I just, I keep grieving how much power has become the currency for relationship. And Mm. when that is the case, we actually are missing out on some incredible opportunities that where trust is actually a far more potent bond and and vehicle or currency, whatever language you want to use for relationships, such that we could experience a far deeper level of intimacy outside of, you know, the disembodied social media zooming that we've all been forced into. And I feel like that's just really related that that power, the degree to which power is our currency for relationship is also the degree to which we are disembodied in our relationships. And there is a lack of depth there. And so like we, we kind of fall back onto power as, as a means of trying to get to scratch that itch. And it just makes me sad. Now, I mean, the, I mean, the really positive, hopeful, optimistic takeaway for that is that, right, this is like literally the church's role (laughs) and why, like why we exist is, is to put everything we've been talking about in this reflection episode together in how we 
seek to glorify God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we do that in embodied ways, we're actually demonstrating a power that is bigger than anything that we could amass through a, pa- a platform online. And mm. so, um, yeah, I think it, I think we're at a place where we still are going to be, it's going to take us a while to, to reach a level of dissatisfaction with where we are in that. Um, but I am hopeful that, you know, whenever that is, it, it, it is inevitable that, that we, um, that we see that gift that the church is to the world start to bear a lot of fruit. Yes. Yes. I think it's going to take a lot of pruning before the, the, uh, the, the vine begins to bear that mm. fruit again, but it is inevitable that it will happen. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the gates of hell can't stand against it. So we're good. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us today and throughout this series on power. We hope it's been helpful to you. We would love to hear your thoughts, feedback, further questions. Let us know at our Facebook group. It's linked in the show notes below. We're going to take the next couple of weeks off as we prepare our next series. Brad and I are going to be taking a look at what's happening to the church and especially ask the question of what the heck is going on with pastors. It's no secret that the church in North America has taken some serious blows over the last couple of years, and we want to try to understand why that is, what's going on, and especially ask the question about what is happening to and with pastors. So whether you are a pastor or you care about pastors, or maybe you've got a real problem with the church and its leaders, you won't want to miss this next series. That'll be out in a couple of weeks. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. We'll talk to you soon right here on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.